And we are starting the book of Acts. So we are in Acts. We are starting verse 1. If you're new with us, uh, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here. Uh, you, uh, glad you're here. Uh, whether you're here in person or watching online, um, we are uh, glad to see you. And uh, we are, as a church, making a practice of walking through the Bible uh, verse by verse. And so we kind of took some snapshots, as it were, in the Gospel of Matthew to see kind of the, the work of Jesus in terms of uh, how he went about the mission, how he went about, uh, not, not necessarily, we didn't look at the words as much as we looked at the actions, we looked at the stories of Jesus in the book of uh, Matthew, so that when we got to the book of Acts, which is where we're going to go verse by verse through the whole book, 28 chapters, so we'll be here a while, um, so that we would understand in this book how in which uh, the disciples, why they did what they did, right? It's not just what they were taught by Jesus that they took, it's what they caught from Jesus, right? It's how, how they lived it out. And so that's why we spent some time in Matthew and now why we're going to be in the book of Acts. So, uh, so this morning at the beginning here, Acts chapter 1, let me pray for us and then uh, we will get started. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word and uh, this book of Acts uh, that we can, uh, we can walk through. I pray you would, uh, through this study, um, that, God, you would teach us and you, you would guide us and direct us and mobilize us as a church uh, to be on mission, to be, uh, to be servants, to be proclaimers, to be heralds, to be those who go out into a lost, dying, hurting, suffering world, to be your hands, your feet, your mouth as we speak and, and serve those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, three crucial decades in world history, that's all it took. Three decades. In the years between AD 33 and AD 68, a new movement was born. In just 30 plus years, the largest religion the world has ever seen was birthed. And what began with about a few dozen, uh, dozen men and women uh, of, of followers of Jesus would result in over 35 million followers of Jesus within the next three to 400 years. Over 60% of the population, the known population of the world, would be those who were followers of Jesus. Hundreds of millions of lives would be changed. Not only would people be changed, but civilizations, cultures, education, medicine, about every area of society would be turned upside down because of what we read here in the book of Acts. This book of Acts is a story, and it's the story about how the church got started, it's how we got here today. It's how Christianity got started. It's the story of how the followers of Jesus took that great commission that we looked at last week at the end of Matthew 28. It's how they took that and went and planted churches all over the world. It's the story also not of what individual churches, individual Christians, sorry, apprentices of Jesus did, but how the spirit of Jesus worked through, in and through local churches to see this gospel go forward. And the same Jesus and the same Holy Spirit that moved and worked in them and through them as a church also is, is in and working through us today. But what is a church? Well, in one sense, we could, there's kind of two definitions of a church. In one sense, a church is a, the collective whole of Christians throughout all of history. If you're a Christian, you're part of what sometimes we refer to as the universal church. Okay? But there's also what we call local Churches, and what we see uh, very particularly in the book of Acts, and what we are even today a local church. These are a local groups of believers who are on mission together to see their communities transformed for God's glory. They're little expressions of the larger universal church for specific geographical locations and contexts. 
So what is to be the focus of these churches, these local churches? The gospel of Jesus Christ is to be the focus for in the gospel now, in the gospel we change into new people. We, we live new lives. We become a new kind of community. In the gospel, we're empowered to reach our town, our city, and our world. It's focusing on the gospel. The Spirit of God takes an individual local church, molds it into what he wants it to be in its local context, and sends it out with the gospel. So how do we become that church on mission? As you'll see our, our theme are kind of on the screen, on the sides there. How do you become that church on mission? What is it? What, how do you do that? What does it mean? And that's really our whole study in the book of Acts. And today, particularly as the book begins, we're going to be looking at what that means. We're going to look at, we need to, a couple things. We're going to look at, we need to believe the record, number one. Number two, repent of selfishness. Number three, obey the mission. And number four, remember the witness. Okay, number one. Believe the record. Our writer of this book is a guy named Luke. If you're familiar with the New Testament, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Same guy who wrote Luke is the same guy that wrote the book of Acts. And he is here wanting to persuade us of the authenticity of the facts that he has recorded. Okay, It's important that we believe what he has written. No, no soldier goes into battle without a weapon unless he's a Medic Doss on Hacksaw Ridge, but that's a whole other story, right? Nor would a soldier go into battle with a weapon. He wasn't quite sure if it would fire or not, right? The same is true of us. We can't carry out the mission of Jesus if we're not sure that what he actually said was true and that what we possess and what we hold is actually accurate and trustworthy. Now, some of you may think that this stuff is kind of made up. Maybe you're here, you're just trying to figure this out. You've heard the Bible. You've heard of Christianity. You had someone bring you. You're not so sure all this stuff even is real or accurate. Maybe it's fairy tale stuff is what you're thinking. You're not sure about the whole Bible thing being trustworthy. Let me introduce you, and this is what, Paul, what uh, the writer does, Luke, introduces us to a guy named Theophilus. This, this guy, Theophilus, is an interesting character. He's, he's also the same guy that Luke wrote to in the Gospel of Luke, right? same guy. And he's probably a new follower of Jesus now who has read that first volume of Luke, the gospel, and now is living in a Roman world, probably in in some kind of Roman um, political or or governmental role based on his name. He's living in this Roman world where the story of Jesus isn't well known, and what is known is not necessarily believed. And so Luke writes to him specifically, and in writing to him, writes to us, to equip and to help bring confidence to the fact of the gospel story of the life and death of Jesus. His goal is to equip this man and us for the mission, so provides assurance and confidence about the history of Christianity. Let's look at a few things about the fact of Christianity. Number one, Jesus is unique, right? It starts off very beginning in the book, first book here, he says, I have dealt with all, this is important, that Jesus began to do and teach. So this is important. Luke tells us right off the beginning is that Jesus stands apart from every other religious leader in the history of the world. Think about that. Every religion at this point, where at this time of writing, and throughout history regarded their founder as having completed his ministry during his or her lifetime, right? Luke says, though, notice the language, Jesus only began to do this after he resurrected, What does that tell us? 
It tells us that Christianity is a historical religion, not based primarily on ideas or philosophies or teachings or ethics, but it's based upon a real person, right? It's based upon a real person. Most religions of the world can exist apart from their founder. For example, you don't need Buddha for Buddhism, right? All you need is his teachings, right? But in Christianity, you need Jesus or you don't have Christianity, right? I, uh, I love uh, Huston Smith in his book uh, on the world's religions said the following. He said, there has only been two prominent and influential figures that their lives have been so tremendous that people around them didn't just ask, who are you? But also, what are you? Buddha and Jesus. He said, in both instances, the followers wanted to worship them, but Buddha said, don't worship me, follow my teaching. But Jesus accepted worship and said, follow me. Right? Very unique. That's what, right off the bat, Luke is telling us that Jesus, Jesus is, is the basis of all that we are about. Right? We, we have to have Jesus or you don't have Christianity. This is the start of it. Number two, we also have to believe that the word is accurate. So this is what he says. Luke says, verse two, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke, as we'll find throughout the book of Acts, and if you've ever read the, the uh, Gospel of Luke as well, he was a physician, he was a doctor, very particular. Right? If you're a doctor, you know you have to be very particular about your area of work, and he was very particular about his work, but also about what he wrote. Did a lot of research. He compared records, right? did a lot of work on this. Matter of fact, listen to how the Gospel of Luke began. Here's how he, he started off the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1 says, Inasmuch... As many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's a lot of words. Okay, it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, he's he's undertaking to compile a, a narrative, right? He is he's used eyewitnesses. He's he talks about here in this passage is an orderly account. I mean, he's very particular about his words. So first, he says there were eyewitnesses. Luke depended not on many, not just one witness, but many witnesses to compile the record. He didn't reply, rely on just one. He compared his sources, carefully investigating them. The idea Luke is saying is you can go talk to people, I've talked to them, and you can ask them about the stories that I wrote and that they're accurate. Paul would later say this in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, speaking to a guy named Festus, one of the, one of the leaders of the Roman world, said, these things were not done in a corner. In other words, the things that happened in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus was not something hidden over in some little nook over in the corner that no one ever saw. It was common. People understood the facts of what had happened. And I love this. The book, the book called the Bible is historical, right? It's written during the period of time that the eyewitnesses existed. Maybe you've never read it, right? Maybe, maybe you think of, of different things. It's un, I've told, told you this before. It doesn't begin with once upon a time there was this baby, right? It didn't start that way. It doesn't start with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I think that's how Star Wars starts. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> Acts begins by addressing, this is interesting, right? Acts begins by addressing a very specific person, Theophilus, right? A, a, a historical person. And it begins with the words, inasmuch as, Luke does. 
And Matthew's gospel begins with a, a Hebrew phone book, basically, a list of names of all these people that you're like, who are these people, right? It's an historical document. In the book of Acts, we'll find this. Luke correctly identifies, based on other historical data that we have, identifies by name, title, job, and time, which was very tough to do with all the changing that would happen in the Roman world and all its leaders, such historical figures as Ananias, Ananias, Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II, Felix, and Festus. And one prominent archaeologist carefully examined Luke's references to 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without making a single mistake. All these places, are they exist. <laughs> so it's an historical document. You can trust the history of which it is, has been written. Number three here, another thing we need to believe about this is that the resurrection is true. Okay, without, without Jesus, without understanding the Bible is historically accurate, and without understanding the resurrection, we, we miss. We will never be a church on mission. So he says in verse 3, he, speaking of Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, it says, for 40 days. So for 40 days, Jesus appeared to people to show he had really risen from the dead. And they, they knew he had died. Right? They, they knew this. The, the people, the followers of Jesus, they knew that. They had stood by the cross. They had heard the blow of the, the hammer. They had seen the nails driven into his, his hands. They had heard the agonies of his screams until his throat was raw. Right? They, they saw the scene. They saw the Roman soldier shove the spear into his side. They knew he had died. His own disciples were so convinced that Jesus had died that many of them, I believe, inferring from, from John 21 and other passages, that they began to kind of scatter, not only scatter, but kind of return to their old way of life. John 21, look, we find Peter stands up to the group and goes, I'm going fishing. <laughs> He's like, Jesus died and Peter goes fishing. Why? Because that was Peter's livelihood, right? He's like, well, it was nice knowing you, Jesus. I mean, I, I, it was good that we, we had this time, but uh, you've died, and so I'm just going to go back to my previous way of life. These disciples, they, they understand they weren't, they weren't groupies. They weren't following Jesus because it was the popular thing to do, right? It was, it was a lot of cost to follow him. And if he was really dead and he wasn't coming back alive, then they just went back to their old way of life. But here in Acts, we find them back together. Why? Why are they all back together again? Why is the band got back together again here? Because Jesus rose again, right? Because he was alive, you can bet they'd never come together for these guys. Most of them worked with their hands for a living, right? They, they wouldn't come back together for some philosophy or some mythology or even some religion. They came together because the Jesus they had known and loved was alive. He conquered death. You see, it's not enough to simply believe Jesus didn't rise from the dead and be like, ah, I don't think he did it. You must come up with an historical, feasible, alternative explanation for the birth of the church, and the spread of Christianity throughout the world, where did it come from? Why would it wouldn't happen if he was dead? Number four, last thing here we have to believe is the gospel is everything. So it says in verse three that Jesus was speaking to them, notice, about the kingdom of God. That's a phrase that we've seen a lot of in the gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, over and over. Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Um, the kingdom, he said, what is that? Is, is what Jesus is bringing to bear upon people and upon the world even now. It's being done through local churches, through the gospel, and the embodiment of Jesus' life in the local contexts in which they exist. This is why the kingdom of God, my friends, is really all about Jesus. 
Right? That's what he taught. It isn't about people picking up a little morality here and there or about people attending some services or people being do-gooders and doing some good deeds. Like That's not what the church is about. It's about Jesus. Right? It's about Jesus. Look what Jesus taught them. This is at the very end of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 24 gets right, is right before Acts 1. I know it's not in your Bible that way, but that's kind of how they were written as one book. So right at the end of Luke 24, here's what Luke said. He records, it. he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, and notice this, all the prophets, even Obadiah, like all of them, okay? He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He goes on to say this, verse 44, that same chapter. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's speaking of all the Old Testament, the entire, all the books of the Old Testament. I mean, this was, think about it, this was the ultimate Bible survey course, right? <laughs> I mean, this was, this was Jesus teaching them the Bible, going book by book and explaining how all of it pointed to him. He didn't simply survey uh, the contents of each book and teach them some interesting stories. They already knew the stories, many of them like the back of their hand, right? They grew up hearing the stories. He taught them what those stories meant. In doing so, Jesus taught them how to preach the gospel out of the Bible. He taught them how to call people to repentance and faith. He showed them how exactly to be witnesses of these things so that people find forgiveness. This is why when you read the book of Acts, again, not just what they heard from Jesus, what they caught from Jesus, right? This is why Peter could stand up and preach the way he does in Acts chapter 2. This is why Stephen could do what he did in Acts chapter 7. This is why Philip could preach and what he said in Acts chapter 8 and why Paul throughout chapter 13 all the way to the end could say the things he did over and over again. They were repeating, it's all about Jesus. <laughs> they weren't just giving, hey, let me tell you the story about David and Goliath. You don't find that in Acts. Again, it's a true story, but he, he, what, he's, what they're doing in the book of Acts is they're telling all of those stories, but they're pointing it all to Jesus. If we're going to be a church on mission, we have to see that Jesus is unique to everyone else in all of history. His word is accurate. His resurrection is true. And the gospel, the Bible, it's all about him. It's what the kingdom is about. It's what the mission is about. It's written on every page, right? The mission is not about moralism or religion or rules. It's about Jesus, okay? Let's establish that right up front. Number two. Next thing we need to do, be a church on missions, not just believe the accuracy of, of the word, but also, number two, repent of selfishness. Now, notice what happens here. Look down at verse four of your Bible. It says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, what, what does all that mean? Jesus tells them to wait for the Spirit to baptize him. And the idea of the, to, to be baptized, it's not that get the water thing out of your head for a second. It's not the water thing he's talking about, it, but it is the idea of being immersed, okay, is what he's talking about, to be baptized with the Spirit, to be immersed, uh, to be indwelled. And this is important to note as we study the book of Acts, this waiting for this baptism of the Spirit is unique to the story, this time in history. We're going to see a lot of these things. Acts is a narrative story. It's telling us how it happened, not telling us how it happens necessarily today in some of these events. The rest of the New Testament makes it clear that once you are a believer, once you come to Christ, you are immediately baptized, immersed, given the Holy Spirit. Okay? 
So understand that, and we'll look at that throughout the book of Acts. But while every believer is baptized, immersed, given the Holy Spirit, not every believer is always filled with the power of the Holy Spirit or is necessarily walking in the Spirit, which is why you'll find those commands in the New Testament, walk in the Spirit, right? Be filled with the Spirit, Acts, um, sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, right? These are commands to do. So we find the Spirit will not leave us, the Spirit is given to us, but his usefulness in our lives may be hindered by selfishness, passivity, sin. And we'll see this here with the disciples. Look at, look at what they say in verse 6. And when they had come together, right, the band's back together, all right, they, and they asked, the first question they asked Jesus, this is crazy. You think about all the things you wanted to ask, right? Here's the first thing they ask. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? <laughs> I mean, you, if you read the Gospels, you hear them do this all the time. Like, okay, yeah, Jesus, you're going to die. You're going to rise again. Okay, okay. But when is the kingdom coming? What are they asking? When are those Romans going to get kicked out, right? When are we going to get this kingdom set up and when are we going to get this thing going? I mean, that, that's what they're asking. That's the first question that they ask. It's, it's kind of like, you know, Lord, we, we've waited a long time. We've waited through, through three extremely long years of ministry, camping out with you, which wasn't the greatest fun at all, which is no, usually not. You obviously consider those three years very important to us. We're not, we're not sure that they were as important as you thought, but hey, you know, we, we wanted to stick with you. We were patient with all of this, Lord. Um, you know, we're only disciples. We're just following your lead. And of course, you went through that whole business of the crucifixion, uh, which was really hard, and the whole resurrection, which is really exciting. I mean, all that stuff is really good, but enough is enough. But let's get down to business now. Let's get down to things that really matter. Where is that kingdom coming when is it coming? Is it coming now? And one of those Romans are getting out of here. <laughs> it's like, I can imagine. I mean, I, I'm not. Uh, Jesus wouldn't do this, but I, well, I would. I'd be like, like, don't you get? Don't you get what I've told you 800 million times? No, no, we didn't. Of course, they're implying they want Jesus to mow down the Romans. Set, and here's the thing, not set, set him up, his kingdom up, and assign them their roles. Because if you remember in some of the gospel stories, Jesus had made reference to the coming kingdom and how they're going to have a throne and all that stuff. So they took that stuff. Like that, that's the one thing they heard. They're like, we remember that part. Um, I mean, I just imagine this is a whole scene's going on here. This is my, you know, imagination. But I imagine James and John over there, they're like sharpening their swords, you know. The Peter's sampling different thrones and making sure to see which one's most comfortable. Matthew's over there because he was, you know, a tax collector. He's crunching numbers, you know, over there. Do we have enough money to build this kingdom, you know? I mean, this is what's all going on. And so after years of teaching and discipleship, years, they still don't get it. Feels a little encouraging, doesn't it? <laughs> so you're like, I still don't get it. Their language implies they're looking for a political overthrow, uh, with Jerusalem as the capital and them as the rulers. And Jesus would, would return one day. Understand that he would return. He he will return one day. Set up a very earthly kingdom, and those things will be real. But that's not what's happening right now. That's not what the mission is about. Bottom line is they still think, okay, they still think that it's all about them. When it's not about them, right? It's about Jesus. Jesus basically tells them to knock it off. He says, hey, you know what? You don't need to know when the earthly kingdom will come. These disciples, would, they'll never get on mission. They would never get on mission until they learn to chuck their own agendas and follow Jesus and his agenda, right? We do this, don't we? We have our own agendas. We present to Jesus and be like, I'll follow you just as long as you follow my plan. Right? As long as you follow my kingdom and set up my kingdom and do the things I want you to do. 
But listen, my friends, the church, the mission is not about you, your needs, or even your political wishes as these disciples had. It's about Jesus, being on mission for him, loving and serving people. As I said last week, we gave this illustration that the church is not a cruise liner, and it's not a battleship. It's an aircraft carrier. We seek to get the gospel uh, to the people, not on board the ship, right? We get out. That's the goal. If the followers of Jesus, think about this, if the followers of Jesus hadn't gotten over their own personal agendas, their own political desires, their own kind of consumeristic tendencies, they never would have left that room. And at the end of, end of that book of Acts would end with chapter one being done, and they're still in this room, and they never left. They had to chuck them, right? They had to get rid of them. The gospel never would have made it to us if they were obsessed with their own kingdom building. We face similar desires and corruptions today. We do. Many churches, even Bible-believing churches, are turning the mission of Jesus into moralism, political maneuvering, cultural wars. I mentioned this last week. The Christian nationalism thing is corrupting the gospel and destroying the mission of Jesus. At its very core, it's selfish. It's either a desire to maintain the status quo, harken back to the good old days, or just make sure no one takes my hard-earned money and my, my freedoms. Basically, many in the churches today, many churches are asking Jesus the same question. When will you restore this kingdom of America? It's very similar, isn't it? The church must turn from such corruption and selfishness and get back to loving Jesus, loving people, and getting the gospel out. That's the mission. It's not about our kingdom building, okay? Number three, obey the mission. Verse eight, this may be a verse, if you're familiar with the Bible, you may have memorized this one. It says this, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. So the Holy Spirit's coming. He's going to give them power, yes. But that power is not for conquering the world and making it subservient to them, but for witnessing to the world and making them servants. And this word, this word witnesses, by the way, uh, you don't pick this up in the English word, but the original language of this, by the way, is a language is called ancient Greek. And the word for witnesses is actually where we get our English word martyr from. When they heard Jesus say this, that's what they heard. <laughs> okay? You will be my martyrs. Okay? Not just people who get to say some nice things and go about their day. Like you, you just might suffer and you might die, right? That's what they heard when they heard Jesus say, you'll be my witnesses. He's calling them to go suffer and possibly die. Remember what Jesus told them before? You want to follow me? You need to what? Take up your cross and follow me, right? Um, take up your cross, die, he talks about it. Um, that, that idea, and I've told you this before, is just important context for us to go back 2,000 years. When he said take up your cross, it wasn't you know, a pendant on your necklace here or in your ears or anything like that, okay? The cross was a means of execution. If it was if it was a different language or a different time period, it would be like Jesus saying, go get your electric chair, sit down and plug it in. Go get your ropes and follow me up to the gallows and throw it over the, throw it over the bar. That, that's in essence what he said when he said, take up your cross and follow me. It was a means of death. He said, this is not going to be easy. You're going to be my witnesses. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. And some of you might even die for this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who did die as a martyr, actually, in Germany during, during Hitler's reign, one of the, only, one of the few uh, pastors, Christians, who actually stood up to Hitler during that time, he said this. He said, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
This means there's nothing self-indulgent about cross-bearing. When disciples would have heard, take up your cross and follow me, they'd seen that before. You know, they lived in these little villages. They saw Romans come into town. And when they took a guy and he bore a cross and left town, they knew exactly what that meant. That meant that guy wasn't coming back, right? He was going to take that cross and they were going to put it in the ground and he was going to die. They, they understood the concept when they heard it. C.S. Lewis, as you know, one of my favorite writers, he put it this way. He said, the Christian way is different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't, I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. <laughs> no half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. That is what Jesus is saying. Follow me. Take up your cross, follow me, and die. So being a Christian means you give up your life. You give up your agenda. You give up your pursuits of Jesus. And it's only as the disciples died to themselves that the church, the people of God, got on mission and changed the world. You know, did you know that many of them, if not all of them actually, would die as martyrs? Each one of the followers, the disciples. Let me just list them off historically what happened to them. You have Matthew would be killed by a sword. Mark would die in Alexandria after being dragged through the streets of the city. Luke, the writer here, would be hung on a large olive tree in Greece. John would be permanently scarred with a, a pot of boiling oil and then banished to an island to die alone. Peter would be crucified upside down in Rome. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would be killed by a sword and beheaded in Jerusalem. James, the apostle, would be thrown down from a high pinnacle and beat with clubs until he died. Philip would be hung. Bartholomew would be scourged and beaten until he died. Andrew would be bound to a cross until he died. Thomas would be run through with a lance. Jude, the other half-brother of Jesus, would be killed by executioner arrows. Matthias, who was added to the band here later on in chapter 1, would also go through this, and he would be stoned and beheaded, and Paul would be beheaded uh, in Rome. When Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, they understood what that meant. It, was, it wasn't going to be easy, and for them, for many of them, they died. And their blood, as Tertullian, who was a second century theologian, he said, uh, he said the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Right? It was their death, willing to die for what they had seen and believed and witnessed that caused Christianity to grow. Make no mistake about it, the power of the Holy Spirit would change their lives. And as we read the book of Acts, we'll see this. It enabled them to, to open their mouths and speak about what they had seen, like Peter again in chapter 2. The power would enable them to step out of their comfort zone, serve and love the people outside of their group in Acts chapter 6. The power was going to enable them to stand up to mockery and threats and proclaim the love of Jesus and even offer forgiveness as they were killed, like Stephen in chapter 7. Power enabled them to move their feet and go places where they would suffer, like Paul in Acts chapter 14, where he would be dragged out of the city, thought he'd be dead, and he gets back up, and you know what he does? He goes right back in the city again. He's like, I got another thing to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> he goes back inside. The power would transform their lives. I mean, the disciples, they would go from defeated disciples to bold proclaimers. I mean, we read chapter 2 of, of, of Acts, and you read about this Peter guy, and you go, I read about him in the Gospels, and this, is this the same Peter? Is there two different ones? Like, he's radically changed, right? He's different. They go from lovers of self to, to lovers of their communities and cities. They go from fearing persecution, we'll find it later in Acts, to praising in the midst of persecution in a prison cell. They'll be transformed from selfishness into selflessness. 
They, they go from being racist people to welcomers, and they, they, they didn't think the gospel should go past the people of the Jewish people, and the next thing you know, it goes to the Gentiles. It goes all over the world. They go from being just groupies and followers to, to missionaries. It, they radically get changed. They start in Jerusalem, which was their local area where they're from. They would go to Judea, which would be considered maybe like the, the suburbs of, of uh, Jerusalem. Then they would go to Samaria, which is kind of the next city over that they hated to go to, as we saw in, in the Gospels. And then they go to the ends of the earth. This verse, Acts 1-8, is really an outline for the entire book of Acts. Maybe you haven't seen that before. But it's really the whole outline. Jerusalem, chapter 2 through 7. Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. The ends of the earth, Acts 13 to 28. That's what we say. I mean, the whole book is broken up in almost geography of this very verse. The gospel would spread like wildfire through the world because these disciples got over themselves and gave everything to Jesus and obeyed the mission of Jesus instead of obeying their own mission. Again, this Tertullian uh, early church kind of theologian, about 150 years later, get this, 150 years later from this story would write this story. Listen, he said this. We, speaking of the churches, we have filled every place among you, <laughs> cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, camps, tribes, companies, palaces, senates, forums. We've left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. Wow. <laughs> Only place that we're not at is the temple of your gods. Everywhere else, we're all over the world. <laughs> we're changing this place. I mean, they would. They would. I mean, Rome would be completely transformed and turned upside down because of, because of Christianity and the, and the church. And this happened, guys, get this again. It happened through ordinary people. I can't tell you enough how ordinary, hopefully you saw if you went through Matthew, how ordinary these followers of Jesus were, these men and these women. They were just normal people. They were ordinary. They weren't extraordinary. They, they, they weren't like super gifted and had these great you know, personalities and attracted people. I mean, listen, I love how uh, Kenneth Latourette, he's a, a historian writing about the history of Christianity, he said this, the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity, how did it grow? Appear not to have been those who made it a profession, okay? Not the, the missionaries and the pastors. But he says, he goes on to say here, but men and women who carried on their livelihood in some purely secular manner. What does that mean? Just, just regular, normal, going to work, you know, and going home. And spoke of their faith to those they met in a natural fashion. He said, I've done all this research, and that's how Christianity spread. Isn't that encouraging to you? Because sometimes you can think like Christianity spreads through, through you, Chris. You get up there and speak, and I'll bring somebody, and hopefully you tell them the gospel, and they get saved, and this is great. And that's not bad. That's, that's fine. But the, the main objective, the main way that Christianity spread was through you, those who didn't make it a profession, who went about their natural lives talking about Jesus to people that they met. This is normal Christianity. The church is not, a, is, is not on mission a church that is not on mission is only not obeying Jesus, my friends. It's not a church. It may be a social club. It may be a gathering. It may be a crowd, a party of sorts, whatever you want to call it, but it's not a church. We gather to worship and equip to send out on mission. That's the goal, right? The gospel compels us to move. It's interesting. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, I've heard people complain before that churches aren't more like Acts chapter 2. Right, if you, you'll see that when we get to Acts chapter 2. I mean, it's, a, it's a community of people. They love each other. They're giving to one another. They're praying for one another. They're serving one another. Like, why isn't the church more like that? You know what's interesting? Until you become a, an Acts 1 church, <laughs> until, you, until you obey the mission that Jesus put us on, you'll never become the Acts chapter 2 church that's in community. Think about this. 
It's only on mission that you learn to give financially as you see all the needs out there and so many ways of getting the gospel out. It's only on mission that you realize that you don't really know much about the Bible, right? Have you ever noticed that? You go talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus and they ask you all these questions. You're like, um, I, know this, I know David and Goliath. <laughs> Can I tell you that story? You're like, I don't know how to answer them. I don't know what to say. What does it force you to do? Dig in your Bible. It forces you to go read. It forces you to go study, you see? It's only on mission that you pray like you've never prayed before because you realize your own inadequacies, you realize your own fears, and you realize that you are unable to convince someone of the reality of Jesus. You need God to do that. And so you pray, you see? It's only on mission that you will strive to live a a life of holiness. You say, what is that? A, A life like Jesus. Holiness is being like Jesus. You realize, because you realize that your, your selfishness and pride hinder the mission. You must kill sin in order to be more effective on mission. That's why I need to live a holy life, for the sake of the gospel, right? So you see, mission moves you to do all the things the Bible commands you to do. This is why, just footnote here for a second, this is why at the end of every service, okay, I know you got, you're getting used to this now, and you just repeat the words, and you say, let's do it, and, or, or I think unless you're Jared, you say, just do it. But uh, you know, other than that, you, you, you say, let's do it. All right, let's do this, this mission thing. Can I, can I say it to you again and help you understand that, that all of it culminates with being sent? You do all, we do all the other things so that we are sent, okay? When we say we delight in the gospel, why? So that we have the, the right message and are rightly motivated to be sent into the world, we grow through relationships. Why? So the lost in the world and suffering world will know us by our love for one another. That's why we do it, so that we're sent out. We, we serve our community so they, so they hear the gospel, so we, we get a platform for being able to share the gospel and talk to people about Jesus so that we're sent into the world. It all culminates with that. It's why we do all we do. If, you, if, if we do all those things and it never gets to being sent, then we do all those things in vain. It's about Jesus and about the mission he sent us on. Number four, last thing. Remember the witness. If we're going to be the church on mission, then we have to remember the witness. And it probably should be capital L, actually. No, I think about it. The witness, okay? Look at verse nine. When he, Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So no doubt the disciples are a bit um, overwhelmed and intimidated by, by this uh, this. this call that Jesus has given to them, I mean, I would be if I heard this. I'd probably sit there and listen to this and be like, okay, we're this little group? (laughs) We're going to do this? Um, Maybe you feel that way too. But to add to their fear and their uncertainties about, I don't know if we can really do this, Jesus. I know you said the Spirit's coming. Hopefully things will change for us, but I don't know if we're going to be able to do that. To add to their fears, Jesus leaves them. (laughs) Can you imagine? You'll be able to witness this throughout the world. Boom. Rocket into the sky. See ya. I mean, I just imagine them. If I was them, I'd be like, no, okay, come back. <laughs> you know, like, where are you, where are you going? Um, and so, I mean, I just, you know, at this point, Peter tells his servants to put the thrones away. Right? James and John are putting their swords back in the scabbard. Uh, Andrew rolls up his scroll and ties it up. Matthew puts down his calculator, right? They're, they're probably like, I imagine like a, like a toddler who just lost their favorite toy, you know? Like, no. You know, their child after being dropped off the first day of school, they get on the bus and they're like, their face looking at the mirror like, Don't, why are you sending me? You know, kind of thing. This is what they felt like. And while they're still standing there, and while they're staring into the sky as Jesus ascends and goes up into the sky like a rocket, they, they're looking up there, and all of a sudden, as they're doing that, angels appear. Kind of put their arm on their shoulders. It's almost like, they, it's like the language is almost like they put their arm on their shoulders and looked up with them like, hey guys, what you looking at? <laughs> 
So look at it says, verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? That this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So basically, in a roundabout way, they, they, they rebuked the disciples. In other words, guys, okay, stop looking up. Stop looking up and look around you at the mission fields in front of you. Let's, let's go, you know. We learn that the, the ascension of Jesus in many ways means, okay, church, get busy now. I, I, I've, I've accomplished the work, and now, it's, now it's, 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 it's for you to go. It means we have more confidence and excitement than ever, for now our Lord is, we could say, is at large. Right? He's everywhere through his spirit in all local churches until he returns. Now, doubts are probably running through the disciples' head, right? The doubts and the ability to carry out the mission. After all, let's, not, let's keep in mind, they had just failed miserably, Right? Jesus, remember he was arrested? What did they do? They took off, right? They took off running, they scattered. Remember in, Acts, in Matthew 28, we saw last week when Jesus resurrected and appeared to them, it said, and some of them did what? Doubted. <laughs> He's like standing right in front of them. They're like, I don't know if that's really you. Let me, you know, Thomas, can I touch your hand? Like, I mean, I don't know if this is really real. I mean, they have failed miserably over and over. He just about to ascend and they go, hey, when are you going to set this kingdom for us? It's like, Wow, they have missed it over and over again. So no doubt they're, they're a little concerned about this. No doubt the vision of the cloud taking Jesus away may have even brought back memories of what they read about in the Old Testament when the glory of God departed, you know, and all of that. So what kept their feet to the fire? What motivated them? Why does Acts keep moving and doesn't end right here, right? Why did they go out and they start planting churches in hard places? Why would they die and die as martyrs as they did? So many of them did. Answer is because now they have a witness, themselves. Jesus' ascension meant not just get busy, but that he had completed the work of redemption. He would now be glorified. He would be at the right hand of the Father. And that's where he sits. We've seen this in our study of the book of Hebrews, right? That's where he sits today. And you know what he does? You know what Jesus does? One of his main ministries, he witnesses. <laughs> he witnesses to you, to the Father. Now listen, he, he, he's not telling the Father how good you are, He's not telling the Father how valuable you are, how gifted you are. He's not spinning things up there and being like, it's not as bad as it looks. You know, it's not, he's not doing any of that. He's telling the Father the truth about you, but here, he's telling the Father the truth about him. I died for her. I died for him. They're forgiven. They're mine, right? That's what he's doing. I purchased them, despite all of their failures and all of their fears and all their inadequacies. Jesus was crucified, think about this, because people bore false witness of him. They couldn't find any evidence to put him to death, so they lied. They had him killed. Those liars, those who lied about him, is you and me. We had him crucified because of our sin. We wanted nothing to do with him, but he went to the cross anyway, right? He went to the cross because he loved us, and he went there to die for us, and he stayed there and went through the grave and out the other side to, to bear our sin. And now despite our unfaithfulness to him, despite our bad witness of him, he is faithful to you and bears witness of his blood that was shed for you. You say, where, where does that come from? Listen, Revelation 1.5 speaks of Jesus Christ. He's called the faithful witness. 1 John 2 says this, we have an advocate, a defense lawyer, <laughs> as it were, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hebrews 7, we saw this in our study of Hebrews. Hebrews 7.25 says he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's, it. That's the defense. That's the advocating. That's the witnessing. Listen, you will only be a witness of Jesus 
when you realize that he witnesses to the Father for you. You see the confidence that comes from that? Every time the disciples would fail on mission, and they would do it often, every time you fail on mission, every time Satan brings up accusations against you, Jesus is pleading his righteousness, his blood that was bought for you. That's a blood-bought child of mine, right? This is what makes you want to carry out the mission. This is what propels you forward. This is what keeps you on task. It's not this. Later on, we're going to see this in the book of Acts, chapter 7. We're going to see a guy named Stephen, one of the followers of Jesus. And he's going to stand before a crowd of kind of religious people that didn't like what he was saying about them and about Jesus to the point to where they get angry and they get mad and they charge him and they stone him and kill him. But before he dies, listen to what happens. Acts 7, 54. Now, when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That gives a pretty visual image. They're angry. But he, speaking of Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was about to be rushed. He's about to be taken out. And he looked up and he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. What did he see that was so motivating? Because after this, he actually can look out at the people who are charging him, and he says exactly, almost exactly what Jesus said at the cross. Forgive them. They don't know what they do, right? What happened? What was so motivating to Stephen? He saw his righteousness there at the right hand of the Father, secured for him. At the very moment that an earthly court was condemning him, Stephen realized that the heavenly court was commending him. That's why he could stand as he did. At the very moment, at that very moment, he got an extremely vivid, powerful sight of what he maybe already, he already knew intellectually that in Jesus, we're free from all condemnation, right? That in Jesus, he's enough. And, and all of that, that vision of him at the right hand of the Father, his righteousness there is what kept his feet to the fire. At that very moment, the verdict there at the throne of God became so real and overwhelming to him that the verdict here, the group, the earthly court, became inconsequential. That's why Stephen could face his accusers with boldness and even with, as the passage goes on to say, with calmness and joy and offer forgiveness as they kill him. To the degree that you're aware of Jesus' work as your advocate, as our righteousness, he's ascended, he's at the right hand of the Father, we will have courage, we'll have love, and we'll have power to be on mission he sent us on. Let me end with a, with a, a statement. It's a testimony of a guy named John Bunyan. John Bunyan, you may, may be familiar with that, with him. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, second most published book in the history of the world outside of the Bible. Here was his testimony, okay? We have his, his, his uh, biography there in the bookstore. But, but listen to his testimony. Here's what he said. And this is exactly what Stephen got, what they got, why Jesus ascended. Listen, one day, as I was passing in the field, this, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was and whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, here he says, did my chains fall off my legs indeed? I was, I was loose from my afflictions and my irons. My temptations also fled away, and I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Amen. It changed him, right? 
It's why he could sit in a prison cell and write Pilgrim's Progress. It's why he would sit there and do all that and go through the suffering he did was because Jesus Christ has ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father, and my righteousness is there, always the same. And that moves us, right? As we go to communion, consider that your righteousness is in heaven right now. I, I know you may have had a really rough week, and you may have sinned all over the place said some really mean things to people, does some things you shouldn't have, all those things. If you're a follower of Jesus, can I tell you something? That even though all of that is true and those things you need to repent of and you may need to go ask forgiveness from somebody, all that stuff may be true, but can I tell you something right now where you sit? You are fully righteous in Christ <laughs> because it's not about you. <laughs> and on the other end of the spectrum, you come in, you're like today, you're like, man, I just had a good week. Man, I really did well. <laughs> I really love some people this week, man. I was selfless. I was a servant and you're kind of getting prideful, can I remind you of something? Your righteousness is in heaven, it's not here. It's in Jesus, right? You, you see why the gospel is so motivating and powerful? Because no matter what someone says to you or does, or even what you do, and you're like, oh, I don't know if I can get off, off the floor again, this gets you off the floor. There's this why Paul would write in Romans 8, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, so it gets you off the floor. That's what keeps you moving, that's what keeps you going, right? So as we go to this, I want you to remember that as we take communion. I want you to, I want it to serve to help you remember the fact, right, that Jesus bled and his body was broken for you so that you were made whole, forgiven, and thus be confident to move out on mission. As we consider that subject, maybe you repent of lack of faith in Jesus. Maybe you repent of lack of moving as he's called you to. But let's pray, not just for yourself as you have some quiet time. Pray for all of us. Pray for Parkside, that we would be that church on mission that we would be so confident in the gospel and what Jesus has done that we move and we go to hard places and we have hard conversations and we see people come to know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together and see this passage. And we're excited. I'm really excited about the book of Acts. It's a fantastic book. Lots of things going on there. But God, it, as we'll see in every single chapter, at the end of the day, it's not about any individual disciples. It's not about any individual person who does this or does that accomplishes this, says this in the book of Acts. It's about you. And God, give us that vision that Bunyan had there, that Stephen had, that God the disciples had, the followers of Jesus had, that when you ascended, God, you were, you were there right now. Right now, you're seated at the right hand of the Father. And you're our advocate. You are our righteousness. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, our righteousness. And so God, help that to motivate us so that wherever we go, and whatever we do, as we seek to make you known to the world around us, God, would you give us that confidence that you're moving, that you've given us your spirit, and that, God, we are able through your grace to fulfill the very things that you've called us to do here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.